Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Trump-Ukraine episode has the temperature rising on impeachment. The president has offered a blizzard of word salads about the issue. Most recently, he said that he withheld military aid from Ukraine because he wanted other countries to help pay. We're joined now by Michael Isakoff, chief investigative correspondent at Yahoo News. He's co-author of Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war in America and the election of Donald Trump. He's co-host of the Skullduggery podcast. Thanks for joining us, Michael Isakoff. Great to be with you. Um, I wonder if you could give us the temperature of some of the people in Washington who are uh, thinking anew about this, because there seem to be Congress people, uh, people in purple districts who didn't want this to happen. And now they're softening. Um, what do you see happening? Uh, it's more than softening. I mean, we've got, you know, very rapid momentum here building for impeachment in which Democrat after Democrat, you know, e- including the moderates who had been resisting, are now recognizing or now saying that the events involving the president's pressure on the um, president of Ukraine to dig up dirt and launch investigations against the son of Vice President Biden uh, rises to a new level and in many ways uh, overshadows uh, even the Russian inquiry itself, that this is of a, you know, of an order of magnitude of abuse of office, abuse of power that exceeds anything we've seen so far. And it's recent. It's it's current. It involves potential extortion over the military aid and that it requires an immediate response. And really, the only response at this point is to uh, move uh, to subpoena the information. And when that's uh, denied, to move to impeachment. Well, um, how do you see that scenario playing out? Because can you really impeach without seeing the documents? It's um, um, kind of a lot of Watergate parallels pop up here with the the tapes uh, during the Nixon era, but uh, you've got to see the evidence before you impeach, right? Uh, You certainly do. Now, of course, we have a fact the president and Giuliani have, you know, essentially confirmed the basics that uh, the president did talk to uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, about Biden and launching investigations into Biden. Now, they're casting this as over their concerns over corruption uh, within Ukraine. Uh, but the fact is that the instance of corruption that Trump is citing involves the son of Vice President Biden, his potential rival in the election. So, you know, you have that and you combine it with the refusal to turn over, you know, the transcript and other information relating to the whistleblower's complaint. And, you know, one option is to just quickly vote out uh, two artic- a, a streamlined articles of impeachment, one about the abuse of power based on the public information already on the record about the holdup of the military aid and the president confirming that he talked to um, uh, Zelensky about Biden and then uh, combine that with another sort of catch-all obstruction uh, against the White House for refusing to turn over documents about this and lots of other stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, 
I think that they're wrestling with how to do this right now. There's a meeting scheduled for four o'clock Eastern Standard Time, a uh, closed door meeting of the House Democratic Caucus that Pelosi has called, and uh, that's what they're trying to figure out how to proceed on this. Uh, and do you think Nancy Pelosi has been moved by this whole thing because she's been the person keeping the lid on impeachment? Uh, yes, I think it's pretty clear that she's been pushed by her members. I mean, I don't know if you caught it, but Debbie Dingell of Michigan, one of the more cautious members of the Democratic leadership, was on MSNBC last night saying, yes, we now need an impeachment investigation. Uh, and I saw that as 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 a pretty pretty significant handwriting on the wall. If if a you know wise uh, cautious uh, member of the leadership like Debbie Dingell now says we have to do this. Uh, I think the ball has has moved in that direction. Now you know there's still lots of difficulties about you know do you do an investigation and if you do that and you you know have try to hold more hearings you delay you squander an opportunity when the iron is hot right now. Uh, if you go to court, you know, that's problematic. You know, tomorrow, Thursday is going to be a big day. Uh, uh, McGuire, the acting DNI, is scheduled to testify. He almost certainly is not going to turn over the whistleblower complaint or answer substantive questions because he's been directed by the Justice Department not to do so. I think at that point, that's the uh, that's the inflection moment. And uh, the the leaders have already said, uh, Adam Schiff, Cummings and um, Engel, uh, the chairman of uh, oversight and foreign relations, have said they will subpoena if he doesn't, McGuire doesn't turn it over. Now, you know, that just goes into the court system, but I don't think they'll wait that long. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to bring articles of impeachment in the next couple of weeks. This brings a question to mind. Um, Donald Trump. Uh, do you think he really minds being impeached by the House? There was an article in the New York Times today about kind of pondering this question, and he thinks he could probably run against this if uh, necessary. He would love to have a vote in the I Senate think, in his think, in with him. I think that's that's true about the Russia stuff because you know at the end of the day, Mueller did not find a criminal conspiracy to coordinate with the Russians, which translates to no collusion. So in that sense, Trump could say he was vindicated, even in spite of the multiple acts of obstruction that were detailed in the Mueller report. You know, the fact that there was no underlying crime uh, is, is something that Trump had in his favor when this was about Russia. But, you know, when you get to, you know, Using your office to pressure a foreign leader to uh, develop information that you can use for uh, in a political campaign, there's almost no defense to that. You don't. You don't have a defense. I mean, there's nobody. I mean, you can say, "Oh, that's totally proper," or "That's a good move." Uh, you know, he has every right to do so. Uh, so that's why I say this is more serious than 
all the Russia stuff we've seen before. I'm talking with Michael Isakoff, chief investigative correspondent at Yahoo News. He is co-host of the Skullduggery podcast, and we're talking about the Trump-Ukraine episode and impeachment. One of the things that wouldn't happen in an impeachment uh, that the president probably doesn't mind is like his own um, abuse of power versus whatever happened with Vice President Biden and his son. He he would he would enjoy just drawing that out and uh, kind of bleeding it and making a lot of confusion and. Um, a lot of people won't know how to feel, uh, you know, want to suss out everything that happened with uh, Vice President Biden and his son, uh, which, you know, it does appear to be a conflict of interest there. How do you feel that would play out in the long run? Uh, you know, that's a good point. And I don't think all of this helps Biden because, you know, there are issues there with the Hunter Biden uh, relationship with this company, Burisma Holdings, which begins after his father, then Vice President Biden, is named as the point person for dealing with Ukraine. So, you know, there was an optics issue, uh, you know, from the start. And, you know, I noticed that uh, there's a great uh, um, push, you know, to uh, push back against that, saying no evidence of wrongdoing, no evidence that Biden was thinking about his son when he demanded that the prosecutor who had been investigating Burisma Holdings be fired. And that, you know, as far as we know, is true that Biden was not acting out of corrupt motives because his because, uh, you know, Democratic reformers, international community, the U.S. government was concerned about that prosecutor. He was demanding be fired for a whole host of reasons completely unrelated to the Hunter Biden matter. But you know, there was an optics problem. It was an appearance of a conflict if it was not a real conflict. And Biden was not, didn't catch it. He did not see that because there wasn't enough public attention about it at the time and and there wasn't a lot of press coverage. Uh, He just didn't catch the fact that he was in an ethically compromised position. Um, That doesn't in any way justify what Trump has done here, uh, but it does muddy the water. And, you know, this could hurt Biden over time. Of course, if Elizabeth Warren emerges as the front runner, which it does look like she might be about to do, then, um, you know, the less, you know, maybe uh, that, you know, that's a way for the Democrats out of this quandary of having the waters muddied with a lot of talk about Biden's ethical issues. Do you think that um, it's possible that this whole impeachment uh, scenario, it could uh, breakdown as to a wash for for the president. I mean, he probably, he doesn't really lose any supporters. The Democrats, uh, you know, don't gain a lot, don't lose a lot. You could you could it's go through possible. this whole whole it's, thing and and have no winner or loser. The 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 one thing that makes this different is the fact that there's the existence of at least one document, a transcript or readout of that phone call. And it seems that if we're moving to impeachment over this, the pressure to release that document and to see what 
Trump actually said to Zelensky. That's the wild card here. And I do see an analogy to the White House tapes during Watergate, where you could, you know, spin a lot of it, you could, you know, uh, put a, 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 a a potential face on some of it. But when the public got to see the actual words on the tapes of what Nixon said and finally leading to that smoking gun tape that came at the very end, there was no defense. And if Trump, you know, did in fact repeatedly bring up Biden to the uh, uh, vice president, to the president of Ukraine eight times, according to the Wall Street Journal account, uh, and the public gets to see that, uh, you know, while he's out there, you know, claiming there's a, it was a beautiful conversation and all that. If you actually see the words, then I think, you know, it does have the potential to be the smoking gun that, you know, tips the scale to uh, mix metaphors there. Uh, does one of the things that the Democrats have uh, on their side is everything else that Donald Trump has done. <laughs> if, if there's a way that they can kind of begin painting a larger picture about the attorney general's office being politicized, about uh, yeah. the, the weatherman being politicized, about everything that is happening, uh, that uh, seems to be something that might land um, land a blow. Yeah, you know what? I actually think that is, uh, the, I think the public has processed that. I think people are where they are. You know, the, the Trump's pattern of, of, of violating norms and doing things in ways no other president has ever done. You know, I, I, I think that's built into the cake. I think this is different. I think this is the ball game. It's about Ukraine. It's about that phone call. It's about the holding up of the military aid. I think this is new. It's fresh. The public hasn't processed it. And I think, you know, uh, yes, there is a you know vast segment of the public that already has, uh, you know, is hostile to Trump and will use anything they can to uh, uh, remove him from office. But I think adding this new element of new, fresh information of what appears to be a, a, a clear abuse of power just based on the public record. I think that's the difference. And I think it will ultimately be about that and not all those other things that you mentioned. Is there a smell about the uh, Republicans in the Senate that has changed at all? I mean, uh, obviously, maybe Mitt Romney might be a guy who would... would uh, he's would, the one guy. It, yeah, is, it might flip. Guy. But after yeah. that, I mean, Lindsey Graham seems to think this whole thing is going to... Vin- if you release the tapes and you see the conversation, uh, it's going to vindicate Trump. Uh, that I'm, seems like a lot of Republicans are just going to stand right there in the Senate. It's possible, but you know what? I think if it did vindicate him, we would have seen it already. They would have put it out right away or would have found some way to get out what they think vindicates him. You know, my gut is it doesn't. But, you know, uh, but I think the pressure is going to be enormous as this proceeds to, you know, let's see what he said. Let's see the words. Let's see how it was done. I mean, that's, you know, uh, you're right. The Republicans, you know, Mitt Romney did have that tweet. If this is true, troubling in the extreme, um, it's a big if. But that also, you know, means that people like Mitt Romney and maybe a few others, Susan Collins, Marco Rubio, Cory Gardner, uh, 
particularly Collins and Gardner, because they're up for re-election uh, in 2020, will feel, you know, we need to see the actual evidence here and we'll demand access to it. And I think at that point, you know, uh, everything is going to ride on, you know, the, the what that transcript shows. I think that is, you know, like I said, I think that's the ballgame. Michael Isikoff is chief investigative correspondent at Yahoo News, and he is the co-host of the Skullduggery podcast. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the Trump, Ukraine, and impeachment episode. Great to be with you. For more than 30 years, Friday afternoon was when you could hear film contributor Milos Stalik from Facets Multimedia. This Friday, we'll spend the hour celebrating our friend and longtime film contributor. We'll play clips, talk with friends, and share stories. And we'd like to share your story. The number is for the listener hotline is 312-893-8680. If you have a story about how Milos changed your view of cinema or society, you could give us a call at 312-893-8680, and uh, you can be on the program, and uh, I'll go right to the the uh, our producer uh, producer's phone there, uh, 312-893-8680. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about what's next after the Climate Action Summit. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The global climate strike was an amazing worldwide event on Friday. The Climate Action Summit at the United Nations may have been uh, not have been a big success on the pledges front, but it brought some things into focus. We're going to take stock of where we are with the global climate movement with Howard Lerner, Executive Director of the Environmental Law Policy Center. Good to talk with you, Howard. Good to join you, Jerome. I wanted to start with President Trump. He did drop by the Climate Action Summit. Um, he didn't mention climate change in his remarks today. He spoke for about 20 minutes and went through a laundry list of things as the General Assembly opened at the United Nations. But he did stop by the Climate Action Summit and say, I believe in clean air and clean water very simply. We have the cleanest air. We have the cleanest water. And, of course, this was the kind of thing that he said during his campaign uh, for president. And uh, it seemed to pass off the climate issue uh, what do you think about his approach this time around? Can he do the same thing that he did when he ran last time? You know, what we're getting from President Trump is the same old, same old. He talks good things about clean air. He talks good things about pristine water. But the actions and the deeds of his administration are completely opposite. We're looking at an administration that has, over time, sought to repeal and roll back the most basic protections for healthy, cleaner air, which is in the midst of rolling back and repealing the clean power plan and trying to move forward the affordable clean energy plan, which will do very little in its replacement, which is rolling back the 
standards designed to protect safe, clean water. So on the old, you know, watch what they do as opposed to what they say. Um, I'm glad President Trump is saying that he supports clean air and clean water, but it's not what he and his administration are doing. So let's get real. I. How big of a change do you think is happening within the public? Because the last uh, presidential campaign, there wasn't that much attention paid to climate change as an issue. But the polls say that, um, you know, a lot of people think it's really important now. Four in 10 say it's a crisis. Uh, Eight in 10 know that human activity is fueling climate change and want something done about it. Um, What do you think about where the public is now? You know, the public's views are shifting and they're moving forward in terms of climate action and climate solutions. And when you look at the president, uh, there's a little bit of a lesson there in terms of the Great Lakes. Um, When it comes to the Great Lakes in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, the Great Lakes and protecting the Great Lakes is an 80-20-90-10 public issue. Everybody supports protecting the Great Lakes, restoring them, keeping our safe drinking water supply clean. doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat, if you're from an urban area, suburban, rural area, women, men, it's all the same. Everybody's strong supporting. So for the first two years of the Trump administration, Jerome, you know the litany of what happened. You know, the talk about should they close up Region 5 EPA office, the zeroing out of the funding for the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, a successful program that has widespread bipartisan support. And the president really was conducting a war on the Great Lakes. Um, What happened is, starting a few months ago, it begins to shift from the policy advisors who are very ideological, you know, Scott Pruitt running EPA and others, about wanting to roll back and sort of rip up the basic environmental protections. All of a sudden now, the political advisors are moving to the forefront. The president's moving into re-election mode. And when it comes to states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, she won by 78,000 votes. And that's how he won the election against Secretary Clinton. His political advisors are saying, you can't be positioned against the Great Lakes. So all of a sudden, the president's in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And a few months ago, he says, I'm a huge supporter of the Great Lakes. I support full funding for the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. We're very pleased he did that. But it's instructive here about how, with the public's opinion, it moved from his anti-environmental policies over to supporting cleaning up the Great Lakes, at least in words and so forth. I think we're beginning to see the same thing happen when it comes to climate change. You know, you have the president's political advisors looking at polling data in all these key swing states, and he's beginning to realize that some of the people whose votes he wants really do care. They recognize the reality of climate change. They want action. and They want solutions. What, 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 does the, what does the president do with something like that? Does he jump back into the Paris Accords? Uh, is that doesn't seem like a thing that he would do. Well, this is a president who talks and tweets. So he begins saying things that begin to sound a little bit better to the public. He tweets something that uh, everybody looks at and examines and says, well, he's moving. But there's a difference between talk 
and action. So what we need to do is stay really carefully attuned to not what President Trump says about, I want clean air, I believe we have pristine clean water, and maybe we need to do something about climate change, but we hold to, okay, what are you actually doing? Are you moving us back into the Paris Climate Accords? Are you going to abandon the repeal of the Clean Power Plan and substituting a do-nothing plan uh, instead of it, as your administration is doing? What are you going to be doing in terms of supporting renewable energy development? And are you going to be talking about keeping a lot of older coal plants running that add more CO2 pollution? What we need to do is hold the president to not the jazzed-up words he's saying that some of his political advisors have urged him to say, but what are he and his administration actually doing? You know, if they had an epiphany, Jerome, and they came around and tomorrow the president pivoted on climate change, some of us might be a little bit skeptical, but by God, we would look at that and say, we'll take that progress. Um, But that's the difference between, you know, whatever he tweets and happens to say uh, at a press event or before some crowd and what his administration is actually doing. And what the public is saying is, We are moving toward climate summits, climate strikes. Now we want climate actions and climate solutions that are pushed and driven by our government at the federal side and that are pushed and driven by businesses in addition to what we're doing at the state and local side. I'm talking with Howard Lerner, Executive Director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center, and we're talking about uh, some of the things that happened with the U.N. Climate Summit, doing a little recap. And um, uh, not to belabor the President Trump element, but uh, he didn't seem to be exactly changing his stripes on climate change when he mocked Greta Thunberg on Twitter, saying that uh, she seems like a very happy young girl looking forward to a bright and wonderful future. So nice to see. Um, he, He, you know... He's mocking this. Well, if you're asking for me or anyone else to suggest that the president has consistency, I don't think that's very likely. Um, you know, the, the, the president's views have been expressed on climate change many, many times. Um, his political advisors presumably are telling him in some of these key swing states, the public is moving. You maybe need to say some things that make it look like you're stepping up and being more constructive on climate solutions. Uh, But clearly the president has a very difficult time staying on that message, even if he believes it. I wanted to say a couple of things about uh, the UN Climate Action Summit and uh, coal. It did seem to isolate some of the big coal countries and uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations wants to stop building new coal plants. This would have to happen in places like India and China. And uh, it, was, that a good, was that a good outcome, that, that, some, that we got a good look at what coal and who the emitters are and, and talked about it? Well, in terms of who's using coal and how much pollution it emits, that's, that's not an open question. The data is there. We know which countries have the heaviest concentration of coal plants. In the same way we know in the United States, you know, which states have a lot of plants and which states don't have any plants. The fact of the matter is we can't be burning more coal and seek to reverse the path of climate change we're on. 
we need to find a way to phase out coal, particularly because there are very, very good opportunities to use solar plus storage and wind power and to be much more energy efficient uh, here in the United States and globally. But if we keep building more coal plants in other countries, and I say the we here, um, if business in other countries keep building more new coal plants, then we're going backwards rather than forward. And the fact of the matter is when it comes to climate change, it doesn't matter whether the carbon dioxide comes from a power plant in Indiana or in India or Indonesia. It has the same effect on the atmosphere. We have a global problem. We need to advance global solutions. Uh, one of the things that the global climate strike seemed to bring more emphasis on was the enormity of the issue. And it's not just coal plants or um, energy issues. It's our diets. It's uh, it's our airplanes. It's our forests. It's a lot of things that need addressing. I uh, That, I think, seems like um, a kind of a good outcome of this weekend. You know, it's a good outcome, and the fact is um, it highlights a real problem. It's not just coal plants, and it's just not oil refineries, and it's not just gas-guzzling cars and trucks. Um, there are lots of other sources. Airplanes are sources, and it's true. My friend Dennis Hayes has written a book about how our consumption of meat really does add to climate problems. I'll go back, Jerome, to the old Willie Sutton rule. Some of your listeners may remember Willie Sutton was a bank robber. He was asked why he robbed banks. He said, because that's where the money is. You know, you got to start with some of the really biggest sources. You know, coal plants, oil refineries, the uses of oil, inefficient cars and trucks. These are really the big dogs. These are the biggest emitters, if you will of carbon dioxide. And then when you're talking about methane coming out of flaring of gas from, you know, the Bakken shale oil in Western North Dakota and in other places, should we look at everything? Yes. Should we make sure that we are focusing and emphasizing our policy actions and our political force on the biggest sources? You know, that's a smart strategy. Howard Lerner is Executive Director of the Environmental Law Policy Center. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about, um, about what's been happening with the Climate Summit and uh, the, cli the climate action the, uh, strike. And I'll be talking to you soon. You know, they're making me an environmental reporter, Howard, and so I'll be, I'll be on your beat. Jerome, we will all miss Worldview, and I will always enjoy working with you as an environmental reporter or a worldview reporter, or a worldview moderator. Bravo, and thanks for having me on to join you and your listeners today. Howard Lerner, Executive Director of the Environmental Law Policy Center.
For more than 30 years on Friday afternoon was when you could hear film contributor Milos Stalik from Facets Multimedia. This Friday we'll spend the hour celebrating our friend and longtime film contributor. We'll play clips, talk with friends, and share stories. We'd also like to share your stories about Milos, things that uh, resonated with you about his commentaries. Maybe you saw a piece of cinema that Milos recommended and it changed your life. We'd like to hear from you on our listener hotline at 312-893-8680. And that's our producer, Julian Haida's number. And we're going to play some of the clips on Friday on the show and get some listener reaction and memories of film contributor Milo Stalek. That number again, 312-893-8680. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about undocumented Korean Americans. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Most Americans typically think of dreamers or undocumented immigrants as predominantly Latino. But while Latinos are heavily targeted by immigration enforcement, they're not the only ethnic group facing uncertainty. At the Democratic primary debate two weeks ago, Korean dreamers jumped on stage and interrupted Joe Biden as he answered a question about immigration. It's not well reported, but one out of every six Koreans in the U.S. is undocumented. Worldview's Ashish Valentine spoke to Glo Choi, a local Korean-American immigrant rights organizer. He talked about how his own immigration experience informs his activism. Being undocumented in a lot of communities is definitely a taboo. And talking about it openly, even within your family, is not something that's discussed. So, for example, in my own family, uh, I am actually undocumented. I don't have DACA. Not simply because we didn't know about the program, which we didn't. But even by the time I knew about it, there was nothing we could do. The deadline had passed and... It's funny because I've been here my whole life. Do you mind telling me a bit about what your experience growing up undocumented in the U.S. was like? Well, I wasn't always undocumented. Uh, Like many people from Korea at the time, we came on student visas. And so that was our plan, really. My father came to study, and then we came as dependents of him on his visa. And then we found out later on that my sister was diagnosed with autism. And so that kind of changed, I think, my parents' life plans, you know, not just are we going to stay in the country, it's just what are we going to do with our daughter? And so the choice was made to live here because at the time in the early 90s, the infrastructure and culture surrounding mental health was significantly poorer than it was in the States. And so they made the decision to build their lives here. People will say they'll sponsor you and then they won't. And oftentimes they will put you in really harsh working conditions knowing that they have that against you. And then you're forced to have to work that way in really terrible conditions, long hours, no breaks, low pay. And that's what both my parents had to do. And eventually 
they just said this is not an option we can partake in anymore. And so the only thing they could do was continuously go to school and constantly keep renewing the student visa and going to school over and over and over again. So what that really looks like is one person has to be a full-time caretaker for my sister. Another parent has to work full-time to support four members of a household. And that person has to go to school full-time as well. So they're paying for tuition, they're paying for rent, they're paying for household goods, they're paying for utilities, they're paying for clothes, you know, everything you need not only to survive, but, I mean, have a damn cookie every once in a while, you know? Uh, And that was my family's life. When I turned 21 and I could no longer be under their dependency. And coincidentally, when I turned 21, that was when the eligibility for DACA had been cut off. So I'd been here since I was four years old. I've lived here more or less as a Korean American. I mean, I'm most definitely an immigrant. You know, I grew I took ESL classes, you know. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood that was incredibly diverse, and we were all learning what it meant to be an American together. And I would say when my status expired and I found out that I could not receive DACA, I think that's when uh, I was just like broken. I just didn't know what else to do with my life. So I just kept my head down. I worked enough to survive. And then, and then Trump was elected. And I think something changed. Uh, I remember it really viscerally where my friends and I were all sitting together watching the TV really late at night and we were like, oh, he can't be elected. Americans don't feel this way as a whole. And then right then and there, it said uh, President Trump is to become president. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, I think that like switched something where I thought I can no longer sit idly by and live just for me. And throughout this work, I'm recognizing all the different injustices. Like there are so many incredible people that are teaching me every single day about uh, so many different issues. And I'm so grateful for it because I get to learn that I'm not alone in the work. I'm not alone facing injustice. And actually, I didn't know any undocumented people, let alone undocumented Korean people. I literally thought I was the only Korean undocumented person in the country because no one talked about it in my household. But the reason I found out about DACA is because our organizing director was doing outreach in Korean churches. And they kept inviting me to hang out. (laughs) They kept asking me to join these rallies with them and just seeing collective power and so many people on the same page about something I felt deep inside was really liberating. I think my position now is to do that for others, to create space for other people to contribute in any way they want to and can. That's how I see my job as an organizer. It's almost romantic in a way, but I think my life has almost led me here almost in like a almost in a deterministic way almost like my experiences and the ways in which i experienced injustice like for class 
for gender, for immigration, for incarceration, for race relations, all things that I've dealt with throughout my life. And seeing it all here represented so well by others that also know it, it's uplifting. And I feel alive. When you were growing up, what was your level of consciousness like in terms of understanding your immigration status? No, I had no idea. Because <laughs> even as an F2 uh, visa holder, your life is very much restricted. So as an F2 visa holder, I wasn't able to get a driver's license up until I was 18 or later. Actually, because this state has passed the TVDL laws, actually through some people that I call colleagues were ones who were instrumental in getting it passed. And it's so strange how people's work really define the ways in which people live. Like, for example, to me, it was just like a piece of legislation that was passed that was beneficial. But now I recognize there are people that lived through those things, that organized their communities, that found power, and then used that power to get this shit done (laughs) you know it doesn't just happen it happens through hard work and determination you're undocumented now like you're at you're at risk yes so what is your daily experience like and what is the experience like of being visible and fighting the system yeah up until i was 21 like i didn't know what i was gonna do i didn't know that my status would expire and what that would look like but i did have that looming sense that my life and its stability was in jeopardy. And in fact, I've always had that, not just through immigration, although that is a framework in which dictated most of my life, but also my sister and her autism, my family and how they're dealing with the stress of, you know, just supporting their family with the very few resources that they have. But now... Now I see, I see hope. Even through it all, uh, I know that at any moment, something bad could happen and I could be taken away and my life would be entirely different. In fact, I had a scare like this, actually. Um, I was going to New York and I was riding the bus and Customs and Border Protection just came on the f-ing bus. And they were just uh, looking at people. They were straight up profiling human beings and thinking, is this person undocumented? Is this person undocumented? And they looked at me and they didn't say anything because that is, that is a privilege of being East Asian in that we're not seen as these quote unquote invaders that often brown and Latinx folks are seen as. Rather, we're seen as the model minority. And there is a form of invisibility compared to the dialogue that surrounds Latinx communities. But even the model minority mythos wasn't created just to boost Asian Americans' images. It was used 
very specifically in a targeted fashion to bring down other communities of color. It was to say, oh, the Asians can do it. Therefore, other people, notably the black community, cannot do it, not due to the lack of government assistance, but because they're not working hard enough or that their fathers are not present at their homes. And so they're using like really terrible arguments for bringing down some communities and uplifting others. And that is a position that Asian Americans really have to understand, that our position has historically been used to bring down other communities, or we were not seen as valid beings at all. Like some of the first instances of discrimination with immigration was against the Asian community. There was the Chinese Exclusion Act, And there was the Page Act before it saying Chinese women are negatively influencing the white man. Therefore, they cannot be allowed in. And then, of course, there was the Japanese internment camps. Uh, There's the way in which that Asians are placed uh, geographically. For example, in Chicago's K-Town, the reason why Asian people worked in some places and not others is because they simply didn't allow them to be there or they just raised the prices up so they couldn't be there. How much information do you have in terms of how many other Koreans or how many other Asians are like in a similar position to you? Um, generally speaking, the statistic we have is that within the Korean population, one in six Koreans are undocumented in this country. One in six. That's often like a pretty shocking number. Like it was shocking for me. Uh, I was like, damn, I'm that one. (laughs) And I didn't know. I simply did not know. They don't give people other avenues. (laughs) You know, that constantly people are like, do it the right way. I keep hearing that over and over. And I want to ask these people, do you know what the right way really entails? The right way is so difficult. Actually, when I first told my friends that I was undocumented, they like, this is, instead of asking, how does that make you feel? How are you? (laughs) You know, they said, why didn't your parents do it? I'm like, you know, like, that's coming from a place where someone believes it's that easy. Otherwise, they would never ask that question, you know, because they're my friends, you know, and I tried to give them a slight degree of credit, you know, because I don't think they hold anything against me in that sense. I think they were shocked. And my response was, I don't think you know what it entails. You know, uh, they know my story. I've been friends with some of these people since I was first in this country when I was four years old. And we grew up together. We had... We had our first uh, meals at, like, Old Country Buffet together, you know? Like, we were decidedly of the same community, the same neighborhood. But, I mean, we certainly almost lived in completely different worlds at times. We need to recognize that often it's our good fortunes that allow us to succeed. Before you judge, before you have these narratives in your mind... Have you sat and talked with somebody who is in a different situation? Because I think oftentimes we are in bubbles. We're with people that share the very same views, very similar experiences. And then we simply judge the experiences of others 
we look at the effect and we never really know the cause. We assume the cause based on the effect and we create our own narratives based on what is seemingly logical. But the premises are often not true. You know, my family, I would argue, works just as hard as any other family, if not harder than some. <laughs> uh, I don't mean that as like something to like take pride in. It's like it's simply the reality of it. We come up with stories for ourselves, but we need to hear the stories of other people before we solidify those things we think are truth. You know, there are times I'm too damn tired to really talk about it, but there are times when I think this is a moment that could be a learning experience. And I do put that first because if we can't talk about it, then no one's ever going to understand it. They're just going to hear the talking heads on the news. They're going to hear about it in the expository and they're not going to hear the real stories. You know, they're not going to hear what it's really like, why this happened, how it happened. And then DACA is not even legislation. It's an executive order. And it's just up in limbo, all these people's livelihoods. And DACA only serves such a small population of people. It's 800,000 when the undocumented population is, you know, there are so many different figures, but it ranges from 12 to 25 million. And that's less than 10% of that undocumented population that's currently being served with DACA. And even that, they're trying to take it away, you know. And so the framework we work in now called Citizenship for All, what it is is it's not just a pathway to citizenship that we desire, but rather how can we all participate fully in a society? That was Glo Choi, a local Korean-American immigrants' rights organizer. He spoke with Worldview's Ashish Valentine. Tomorrow on Worldview, we will have a chat with Catalina Maria Johnson and have Global Notes, our look at international music. She's just back from a music festival in Lisbon, Portugal, and she'll have an armload of music to share with us from Portugal tomorrow on Worldview. For more than 30 years, Friday afternoon was where you could hear film contributor Milos Stalik from Facets. This Friday, we'll spend the hour celebrating our friend and longtime film contributor. We'll play clips, talk with friends, and share stories. We wanted to share your stories. If you have a memorable uh, memory of Milos's commentaries or something you saw that Milos recommended that uh, ended up changing you, give us a call on our listener hotline at 312 893 8680. That's producer Julian Haida's phone. 312-893-8680. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.